Welcome to the Financial Wake-Up Call podcast with Dave Crossan. I am the mere appetizer to this podcast round, Vin Avenue, and handing it off to uh, Chef Dave Crossan oh, there with the go. main here course. Here we go. And oh, we, boy. we got a surprise treat on the podcast uh, this week, Dave. I think it's time we bring in some other voices, some other experts. The bring time in the, is right, the righty yeah. reliever out of the exactly. bullpen. Exactly. Yeah, we need it. Let's do it. I'm so excited. So on the podcast with us today, drum roll, da 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 da, the whole bit. Jordan Gale of Gale Lachlan in Hazlitt, Attorneys at Law. Jordan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It is a pleasure to spend this evening, afternoon with both of you. Well, I'm excited because we have some good topics to bring up. Of course, we want to talk about your firm and what you focus in on, but I thought it was so important to talk about divorce and different things that people need to consider when, unfortunately, a marriage goes that direction and maybe some questions that people may have about what that looks like. I, I think for a lot of people, Jordan, unfortunately, if they have to go through a divorce, somebody may say, well, my husband did this or my wife did that and I should get more of the assets because of that reason. Can we touch upon that? Is that something that, let's say, somebody in the marriage does something um, that they shouldn't have? Uh, I don't know. They, they had an affair. They ended up doing something um, that they, you know, that went against the marriage itself that maybe they feel they're entitled to more of the assets. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. So to begin with, we're going to have some great discussions on this podcast. I look forward to having them with both of you and especially you, David. Um, but nothing on here should be construed as me giving any type of legal advice. And everyone's situation is really fact-specific. So I would say that if anything here you know, rings a bell with something that may be you know, applicable to you, that you should speak to an attorney, call my office, call an attorney you know, um, and discuss your matter with that individual more in depth. But Right I, and I appreciate you putting that out there because you're right. This is for information, a general conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. But in terms of a marriage, you know, there many instances or there are many times where someone sits across my desk and they go, Jordan, I want you to know about my wife. I want you to know about my husband and they're cheating on me. And does that mean I can get all these assets and I'm supposed to get all these great things? And, and the short answer is no. In New Jersey, just because you have an individual who isn't faithful to the marriage doesn't mean that you're now entitled to more when it comes to equitable distribution, which is dividing the assets from the marriage, than you would be if it was a you know irreconcilable breakup of the marriage in and of itself. Now, if someone's dissipating an asset, you guys had a joint bank account, right? And someone's uh, one of the husband or, or wife took all the money out of it. That's a different story. But in terms of not being faithful to the marriage and having an affair, that that in and of itself wouldn't lend itself to someone getting more out of the marriage than the other. It's just really an emotional topic for the for the parties to get to. That's interesting. So what you're saying is if there was a situation where a husband or wife started to take money out of a joint account and start putting it and say just their name, that's looked at. That's kind of like a look back period just, just to make sure that everything's on the up and up, so to speak. I mean, yeah, think about it. Money that you have in a joint account that you've been putting in there is considered a marital asset. I work nine to five. My bank check, my 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 check goes in there every Friday. My wife works nine to five. Her check goes in there every Friday. You know, one party isn't entitled to all of that money. It's it's an asset that needs to be discussed 
and divided, you know, through the whole process of the divorce. One party can't just unilaterally say without the consent of the other that, you know what, I think all this money's mine, I'm going to take it. You know, we got some problems there. Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, let, let me ask you this. And I've had this conversation with many clients. They receive an inheritance. OK, let's I'll, uh, lay out a scenario where uh, Mary gets an inheritance from her parents. OK, and she keeps it just in her name and then later gets a divorce. Is that money that's off the table, so to speak, from splitting it, say, 50 50? The short answer is yes. Okay. Inherited money is exempt from equitable distribution. However, if that money gets commingled with marital assets, you take part of that inherited money. Say you get 100000 you move 50 into a joint account. That 50 now loses that protection of being inherited and exempt and is now going to be subject to equitable distribution. So the short answer is if you ever do inherit money from a family member, and you keep it in its separate account. That's how you should keep it, you know, in the event, obviously, that there's a breakdown in the marriage and it ultimately re- results in a divorce. But once you commingle those funds, that's that's a key term. Then all of a sudden, all those protections are off the table. I'm, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I do see that where uh, a family member, a husband or wife receives money from their parents uh, and the need to keep that separate. Now, again, in no way do we know if that marriage is going to go through a divorce. No, we don't know that. We hope it wouldn't. But just to be safe, that money that that individual is receiving to keep it separate, keep it just in their name rather than to what you were just saying, putting that in a joint account, then there's a problem if a divorce uh, does happen. Yeah, correct. Or sometimes they'll They'll pull out a, a chunk of the money and they'll do uh, repairs or upgrades to the house. And then all of a sudden now we're talking about selling the house and the person says, well, I took you know 50000 out of an account which was inherited money, so I should get that off the top. But at that point now there's a real question of, well, was all of that commingled now in terms of bringing it into the marital residence to improve the marital residence? And are you entitled to that money off the top when the sale occurs? So leaving it on its own in its own account not bringing it into any joint accounts, not commingling it with any marital funds or assets, continues uh, continues to have that protection with that inherited money. Let me throw this one thought out, and this would be before the marriage. Let's say uh, the wife, in this case, has a property, owns a home in just her name. They get married, but she keeps it just in her name. Is that a similar idea, or can that create a problem, being that that asset came into the marriage and then now that they're married even though she kept it in her own name is that have any protections to it or no so i'm going to give you the worst answer i can give you i'm hoping you would yes please (laughs) the short answer is it depends if if he or she owned that asset we'll use a house premaritally and they bring it into the marriage and they only live in it for a year or two or three years, and then the parties ultimately get divorced, perhaps the other spouse really doesn't have any ownership interest in it. But let's just say you have that same fact scenario, and they live in there for 20, 30 years. All of a sudden now that other individual, we'll call it the wife for this this hypothetical, the wife could say, hey, look, I'm not on the deed, and I'm not on the mortgage, 
but I've lived in this house for 20, 30 years. I've helped maintain the house. I've helped pay with overhead expenses. I've helped bring food into the house. My money's been used to pay for utilities. My money's been used potentially for upgrades. And all of a sudden, it's no longer, well, I bought this premaritally. This is mine. You're not entitled to it. That other spouse, that wife, she most likely has an ownership right to a portion of the house. Is it 50-50? I don't know. You know, it, it depends on the years. It depends on what the parties did or didn't do with the house. But there's definitely an argument that if you own a house premaritally, you live in it for a, you know, a good amount of time as a married couple and a divorce you know, follows, that the other spouse can make a claim to some type of ownership in that house. And that, that's interesting because I think people think that if they keep it separate, and I like the fact that you're you know, putting it out there, it really does depend on the situation where maybe if it's early in the marriage, it could be considered separate. But to your point, if that house became their home and they're there for 25 years, that the wife in this case um, who had the property prior to the marriage, there may be an issue that there may be some sort of split, if you will, of the value of that home or who would get that home in that particular situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really fact sensitive. You know, I own it for 30 years and then we only live there for a few years, you know, married. You know, obviously there's a much stronger argument that it was premarital and there's really no division in terms of the ownership of the house with the marriage versus I owned it for a few years premaritally and we lived there for many years as a married couple. Now there's a much stronger argument that when we're looking at how to distribute the assets of the marriage, you know, some type of percentage should be allocated to the other party in terms of what they're entitled to if the house is sold or if there's a refinance as far as a buyout. Okay, now that's fair. Jordan, if it's okay with you, I'd like to shift gears, uh, different aspects of your firm and what you actually do provide. And you and I had a great conversation prior to doing this. Your firm offers personal injury. Am I correct in saying that? That is correct. I'm going to switch hats now and put that other hat on. Put the other hat on. Here we go. Uh, So you had mentioned to me, this was very interesting. You were at a diner and you had a conversation with the individual, the... um, the server said something to you about, um, or you had said to look at your website and you had made an assumption about what people understand about personal injury. Can you expand upon that? So I think, yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you're a lawyer for a long enough period of time, you become blind to, you know, terms that other people may not recognize and be as familiar with as as you are because they're so commonplace in terms of your day-to-day language. But carrying on to what you said is is we're sitting at a diner and and we're redoing our website because it's time and uh, we're talking to the waitress and we go to the diner frequently. They become friendly with all the staff there and I show my phone to the waitress and I say, what do you think about this new layout of this website? And she says, what is personal injury law? And, and, and dawned on me, you know, for me, personal injury law is such a personal personal injury law is such a, you know, used term day to day here that I know exactly what it means. But to her, it was it was, you know, foreign. I said, you know, personal injury law like car accidents, like slip and falls, like a dog bite, like a truck accident, like uh, tripping over a curb. She said, I had no idea. You know, I was actually in an accident, and if I would have known, I would have called you. And it, and you just you take for granted that. You know, some of these terms are just not commonplace for people. So it's, it, you know, you need to be able to convey that to, to everyone so that they understand what personal injury law means. 
That makes a lot of sense. And let me ask you this. So if somebody does have one of those situations that you mentioned, and they fall somewhere, something happens, what should they do? Obviously, I'm sure there's going to be a report. Maybe there's a medical team that checks on the individual. In your opinion, if that, let's say that happens to somebody listening that they went through this, what steps should they take about possibly speaking to somebody about getting advice if there is some negligence by the place that they went to? that they had this fall, for example? So just dealing strictly with someone who trips over, we'll call it an uneven sidewalk or a sidewalk that's been uplifted because of a root of a tree. Uh, more than likely, if the injury is severe, I mean, the last thing they're thinking about on that day is I need to call a lawyer. Because right. There's a possibility they're going to the hospital in an ambulance. Um, but once they're able to get their affairs in order, I tell them to reach out to an attorney, to call them, to speak to him or her, um, to determine if this is a defect that should have been repaired um, and to discuss their injuries and if there's a possible uh, lawsuit that could be filed. Because, look, you know, I'm good, but I'm not a magician. I can't make your body the way it was before the accident, but I can help so that the injuries you sustained and that the costs you may incur in the future can be covered and, and make sure that you have money in your pocket so that you're able to, you know, live as close as a regular life as you were before this accident. So, um it's good to talk to an attorney. You should come in. You should take pictures if you're able to go back the next day so we can see what, what the defect was. Um, and it's very important to know who owns the property because if it's someone like me or you, David, then it's, it's, it's one standard. But if it's someone like the state or the county or a municipality, it's a completely different standard. So it's important to know who owns the property and then to figure out what your injuries are. I think you bring up a really good point. For a lot of us, I know if I fell over or tripped over something, I, my first reaction is, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, and just try and move on, where, you know, weeks later, you know, so, something could be wrong. I could have twisted my neck or, or hurt my knee or something that I, I didn't feel it at that moment. So it, it does sound like if something happens, and let's say you do get treatment just to be safe, to protect yourself of an injury that may be something that, you know, could be much longer than you think. It's at least have the conversation to say, hey, here's what happened. And just to get advice on how best to handle that going forward. Would that be a fair assessment? A hundred percent. I mean, it costs you nothing to call me to even come in for a consultation if, if, if it warrants it to discuss what happened to discuss the day, to discuss the curb, to discuss the sidewalk, to discuss the car accident, to discuss whatever happened. And, and for me to give you my legal opinion on if I think there's a case or there's not a case, you know, you're, it's not as if I'm, I, you need to you know, open your bank account and come sit and talk about how you tripped over a curb. It's for free. You know, it's free advice to sit across from me, to sit across from one of the partners here and assess what happened on that day and if there's a possible lawsuit that we could file. I'm glad you brought that up because for a lot of people, you'd hate to have something where there's an injury, you seem like you're fine, and then it's something that continues, that carries on, that you need more medical attention, and now you're coming out of pocket where maybe it was something that, at least with a conversation, you can see what your rights are, I guess, is the best way to put it, and to see what makes sense on how to handle it. And if there's nothing to discuss from that uh, point forward, fair enough, but at least just to know where uh, somebody stands and w how they should look at it, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with many instances, we'll ask the individual to bring in medical records so we can take a look at what happened. You know, what did, 
what did your doctor say? What did the hospital say? What did the x-rays show or what didn't they show? And we go through it and, and you know, we give our legal opinion. You know, when you come early on in, in, the, in the case, I'll call it, you know, sometimes you don't have a case at that point in time. But things happen over time. And as you were saying, look, you know, your knee bothered you. You didn't think it was anything. All of a sudden you go get an MRI and you got to, you know, you, you tore your ACL. It's right. a different story. So, you know, you don't have to have, I'll call it an injury that day. It's something that could, you know, happen over time. It's just important to keep track of where you've been in terms of treatments and doctors so you can keep a timeline of what's been going on. And, and you got two years in many instances to file a claim. Obviously, that's, you know, subject to change and it depends on what the facts are and who got hurt and so on and so forth. But for, for the most part, you have about a two-year statute of limitations from the date of the incident. So it doesn't have to be that day, that week, that month, you know, two months. It's something that could happen, you know, a few months later and, and we can talk about it. Okay, uh, fair enough. I, I want to shift gears again, and since we're talking about property and something that could happen on somebody's property, talking about the relationship between a landlord and a tenant for a lot of listeners, they may be renting their home, and just to get into the conversation about their rights, the landlord rights, as well as the tenant rights, can you get into that? Well, let me put my other hat on really Put quick. it on. Give Here we go. Seconds, all right. All Changing right. it up. So <laughs> New Jersey is an anti-eviction state, which means uh, the statutes in New Jersey heavily favor keeping a roof over the tenant's head. And landlords always go, but it's my house. I pay the mortgage. I pay this. And the state says, that's great. We don't want people living in the streets. So because of that, it's much harder for the landlord to evict a tenant than I'm sure a landlord would like to hear. And this is just in the residential context, because you have to look at it as two separate things, residential and commercial. Uh, in, in many instances, you know, you pay your rent, you don't pay your rent. You don't pay your rent. A landlord can take you to court and say, hey, they didn't pay your rent, non-payment rent, I want them out. And they don't have to send you any notices. You know, you could open up your door and all of a sudden there's a complaint on it. But if you breach the lease or you, or you do some type of violation of the lease, but you're still paying rent, then the landlord's required to send you notices to give you time to cure the defect. If you don't de cure the defect, the landlord's got to send you more notices. Um, and then the landlord can move forward with the eviction, but much longer period of time to get that done. And it takes time for the eviction in the event there is one to, to uh, actually be finalized if the, if the judge decides that in the courthouse. But tenants have a lot of rights. Landlords, not as much, but you know, the goal is pay your rent and then you don't have to worry about any of that. Well, you bring up an interesting point too regarding the rights of the tenant, the renter, and also there's aspects of it with liability. If, you know, the home itself, there's some issues, repairs that aren't done, that landlord could have issues there as well. Yeah, so if, if you're renting a property and there are uh, defects or there are uh, items in the house which go directly towards habitability that aren't functioning properly. It's January in New Jersey and my heat doesn't work. It's, you know, July in New Jersey and my um, AC is not working. There's no water. There's no hot water. Things that affect your day-to-day -day living, habitability issues, you know, you can send your landlord a notice outlining all of these defects. And if the landlord doesn't fix them, you can pay your rent into um, the court. You can pay for uh, fixing these defects and then deduct it from your rent. But the key thing is, is you got to tell your landlord. You can't just say, you know what, 
screw him, I'm not paying him, I'm not doing this, you know, I'll do it myself. You have to give your landlord the opportunity to fix these defects before you elect to do anything in terms of your rental money. So, okay, that, that's a, a great point. Example, let's say the air conditioning isn't working. The tenant can't just go out and just fix it and, and send the landlord a bill and say, hey, I, I bought a brand new air conditioning system. Um, right. You know, I'll deduct it off the rent. The landlord needs yeah. to at least have an opportunity to respond to the tenant about what the issue is. Is that a fair way, uh, a fair assessment? Yeah, he, he, the tenant can't just call up, you know, the local, you know, HVAC guy, put it in $8,000, you know, unit and say, hey, thanks, <laughs> landlord, really appreciate it. it. It was cold in here, so I put a brand new fireplace and, yeah. uh, yes, a heating system. No. So yeah. basically the, the landlord needs to be provided an opportunity to make good on whatever the issue is. Got to send them notice, just like how the landlord has to send the tenant notice for any defect, or any, excuse me, any violation of the lease. The tenant's got to send the landlord a notice for any violation of the lease and give the landlord the opportunity to fix it. Okay. Well, I want to shift gears, although we're very close in what we're talking about here. Let's talk about real estate. You also handle real estate transactions, the buying and the selling of it. Are there other aspects of your business that you deal in real estate? That, I, that you can talk about regarding maybe permits and different items like that? So, yes. Once again, putting on that other hat that I love to wear. So we, far, this is the fourth hat. Clients. Here we go. I love it. I'm, I'm running out of space in my office. I just want you to know that. I might have to ask for a bigger office after this phone call. <laughs> for real estate, uh, we, we, we provide our clients a, a multitude of services. So we represent buyers and sellers of commercial and uh, residential real estate, single-family homes, condominium units. Um, we do the attorney review letters, do the whole process in terms of you know walking you know with our client from start to finish if they're selling or if they're buying, you know help them with um, the inspections and kind of talk them through that. Um, in many instances, and in, in, for inspections, we say, hey, look, you know we're we're smart, but we're not you know HVAC, flu, pipe smart. You should really talk to the inspector. You should really talk to a plumber to get a better handle of what's going on. But we help clients there. Um, and in many instances, what we'll do with it when you're buying uh, real estate is we'll file OPRA requests with the municipality, O-P-R-A. And we'll, we'll, we'll request a copy of all the permits that have been issued for the house or the condo that the client's buying. And in many instances, uh, a, a hot water heater was installed and a permit wasn't pulled. A deck was installed and a permit wasn't pulled. And we'll say, hey, look, you know, you can either buy this without this permit and risk having to get it in the future or – we can say to the seller, look, we got the permit list right here from the town. No no permit for the HVAC, no permit mm. for the for the deck. We want you to pull these because, you know, they can be your problem if you buy this house. Because once you buy the house, it's your house and it's your problem. Okay. Well, I have to ask, during the pandemic, obviously we're on the other side of that now. That must have been challenging, going through that, dealing with exactly what you're talking about, the inspections, maybe the issues with the uh, any issues with the permits, just because of the availability of individuals to provide assistance during that troubled time. What was that like? And are we at a better place now, um, being that we're uh, through the, the pandemic? So, yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic, pandemic definitely slowed um, response times down, but under the OPRA Act, the municipality has seven days to respond. Sometimes they say, you know, we need more time, and that would be their response, and you'd have to wait a little bit longer. 
you know, they were short staffed or they weren't in the uh, town hall as frequently as they typically would have been, you know, pre pandemic, but it made it more difficult. But if you're buying a house, you know, uh, what we do here at the firm is typically once we get out of return and review, we file the open request at that point in time. And, and if you're buying and you're getting a mortgage, more than likely you're going to need about 30 to 45 days from start to finish in order for your loan to clear and for the purchase to be finalized. So that window right there typically gives us enough time to get the Oprah request in, to get the results in, to review them, to discuss them with our client, and to raise any issues or concerns that we have with our client and also with the seller. Okay. Well, I appreciate that because for a lot of people, when they're buying a home or selling a home, there's a lot of moving parts. And it's so important that, especially if I'm buying a home, that there is a proper inspection. The other aspect too that you brought up that I felt was interesting was the permits to make sure there's not an open permit that maybe you're right. A new air conditioning unit, well, was a permit pulled, you know, different items that uh, haven't been closed out that at least the buyer has an opportunity to say, I'm okay moving ahead with the purchase or, hey, I want to revisit this before I um, sign on the dotted line. Yeah, you just want to make sure everything is installed properly, that, you know, the the decking was bolted to the house right, that the the joists of the deck are, you know, in the proper braces. You know, you want to make sure everything's done right because you don't want to be standing on a deck and, you know, with your family and have a collapse. You don't want to buy a house and the next day, you know, the AC unit was installed improperly and now it's broken because of the right. way it was installed and, and you got to buy a new unit. So, you know, by having the permit process done, by getting the, you know, building department inspectors out there to inspect it to ensure it was done properly and correctly, hopefully in the long run makes the house safer and that item lasts longer. Jordan, I certainly appreciate your time today. But before we wrap up, I know you're working on a special event, a car show. If you could take a couple moments and go over what's going on there. Sure. So, um, and thank you for bringing this up. Uh, this September 30th at uh, One Willow in the Highlands, uh, I'm organizing a car show. It's going to be hopefully a lot of classic cars, some newer cars, um, for the benefit of the Carrier Foundation, and and they help individuals who can't afford uh, rehab remain in rehab. So what they would do is they would take the funds uh, uh, raised at this fundraiser. And they would make it so that an individual doesn't need to decide if they want to pay rent or continue to participate in rehab. They would use those funds to help it so they could stay in rehab, to pay for Ubers and Lyfts so they could go to rehab um, and, and, and continue to get through sobriety. And the reason why I'm doing this event is because this September is actually six years since I lost my best friend to the opioid pandemic. Uh, he was involved in a motor vehicle accident, was prescribed painkillers. Obviously, when that prescription um, ended, he uh, transitioned into the use of heroin, was in rehab clinics and out of rehab clinics and ultimately overdosed. Um, so this event's really in his honor, and it's something I've wanted to do. I have a classic car. I love classic cars. And I felt September on the Jersey Shore raising money for a good cause was a great idea. I appreciate you telling us about that. And obviously, any opportunity um, for any of the people listening to the podcast want to support what would be the best way to get as much information on this event? So um, we actually have a fundraiser page that we're in the process of setting up. It's a link I could easily give to you, David, uh, when we're off of this uh, podcast. Okay. Um, it, it direct it directly links right to the carrier clinic. It's, a, it's part of Hackensack Meridian. 
Um, it takes out any middleman in terms of sending me checks or sending you checks or sure. sending the checks to them. It's an online way to just click and donate, and then they'll receive all of the uh, donations and use them accordingly to help the patients there at that facility. Excellent. Excellent. Jordan, before we finally wrap up here, and, and again, thank you so much for your time. Please allow uh, the listeners um, the, your information if they need to reach out to you or they may have some questions on anything that was discussed or they may have uh, needs uh, for something that's going on in their life. Sure. So, again, my name is Jordan Gale. The firm name is Gale & Lachlan. We are located in Hazlitt, New Jersey on Highway 35 across from Costco, a very sought-after destination. Uh, the phone number here is 732-264-6000, and we cater to many, many areas along. You and I, David, touched on a few of them, but, you know, we do divorces, we do personal injury, we do real estate, we do landlord-tenant, we do um, workers' compensation, we review and handle select uh, medical malpractice cases, we do estate and wills and, and all of the estate planning. So, you know, if we can't help you, I, I can at least direct you to an attorney that could assist you. But for many people, they'll come in here for a closing, they'll leave doing a will, and they'll say goodbye after they sell their house. Jordan, that's excellent. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll get you on a future uh, podcast. Uh, any updates, anything that's going on, uh, feel free to come back at any time. David, it's always a pleasure to spend time speaking with you. I look forward to seeing you in person and hanging out and talking about more in-depth talk topics. Excellent. Stay well. Thank you so much. You too, David. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That, uh, that was a nice special guest there, Dave, as we uh, put Very a bow on the podcast here. Yes, great information, and I wanted to put that out there. Uh, just people have questions on different legal matters and just to you know, know that they can at least reach out to somebody like Jordan or at least with this information uh, can help them with the situation maybe that they're dealing with. There you go. So options, discussion points, and so much more. Another jam-packed edition of the Financial Wake Up Call podcast with Dave Crossin. So, Dave, till next time, my friend. Thank you. Stay well. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. This information is not intended to be a substitute for individualized legal advice. Please consult your legal advisor regarding your specific situation.